Hey everybody, this is John Cherry and this week on the podcast I interview one of my old professors, Professor Philip Spiss, who is a Professor Emeritus and past director of the Institute for Futures Research at Stellenbosch University. He's currently a wine farmer, so semi-retired, um, still consulting in future studies um, and is still a part-time lecturer uh, in principles of future studies at the University of Stellenbosch Business School. Prof Spies has a wealth of wisdom when it comes to the practical application of futures thinking, and I was lucky enough to have a chat with him on his farm in Wellington. This is a two-part podcast. This is part one of uh, of those two parts. Welcome to the podcast, Heroes of Futurism, with me, Jonathan Cherry. This podcast is about the future and how to create it, what opportunities exist, what ideas are worth thinking about, and how you can begin to design the future that you want. Let's start right now. I started the discussion with Prof. Spiss by asking him what real value foresight methodologies and future studies in general has for individuals and organizations wanting to create a better tomorrow. He started off by explaining the value the discipline has for creating urgency, which inspires action. If you put your hand into a fire, you will pull it back because that is a reality. Mm. Uh, if a bull starts chasing you, you will run away because that's a reality. If you don't do it, you may end up uh, being quite messed up. Yeah. So that is one thing, fear. As I've mentioned, coordination. Mm. Uh, that is one, one thing. Fear is one, one aspect of it. The other one is, is of course... Desirable, the, the desirability of something. Mm. Uh, what do you value? What's important? Um, um, are, are you into it only for the money? Or do you have something else mm. that drives you? So that idea of coordination, the, the thing that, that motivates you, not motivates you, drives you to act in mm. a certain way. Yeah. That's important. Now, if you remember, you know, our discussion in the class is about the role of, of scenarios. Mm. The primary purpose of a scenario is to, to create awareness. Mm. Um, here, a part of that, of course, is awareness, awareness of, of, of the factual nature of what you're confronted with. Mm. That is the, uh, the cognitive dimension. The second thing is a test. What, what's happening with that awareness in terms of your value structure, the things that emotionally affects you? It may be your family, maybe your children, it may be your job, whatever. Mm. Once it affects the emotion side, then you enter the question of acting on it. Mm. And the role of a scenario is to create that whole idea mm. of how it should interact with each other and, and bring that depth of understanding and bring the same kind of, almost the same kind of reality to your mind as when you put your hand into a fire. Mm. It must become real. Mm. It must become desirable or, or at least motivational for you to, 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 to act on it. 
The challenge, of course, is that that in future studies, uh, future studies is to get people to do that. Yeah. That is the great challenge. On the one side, if it cannot explain reality correctly, it's useless. Mm. When I was at the Institute, we started the Business Futures uh, book. Yeah. That was 35 years almost ago that we started that. And the, the reason for that was I've discovered that if you have a discussion with people about something important, unless you can get them to agree on the realities in front of you, mm. that discussion will never end because then you you debate positions, you mm. debate worldviews, you debate different perspectives and mm. so on. And it can become extremely violent. I've been in situations where the conflict was in, in the room. Mm. The way we, we solved that was to, to tackle the cognitive part to bring into the, the research dimensions, bring in the so-called truth mm. of what is happening and allow people to start thinking out of this current analysis through looking at the trends, looking at the structures, looking at the various things that interplay to build into them a future reality. Mm. Not just an abstract view of it, not something, but something they can relate to. And that is the way that you know that we manage a lot of situations, very serious situations in South Africa. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting because as you're talking about that, it makes me think about the problem that we have with inequality. And in many instances, inequality is something which we think, well, it's wealth inequality or income inequality, but it's also an issue of reality inequality, is that in many instances, people are just, they don't experience the same reality. So in some sense, with a, with a country like South Africa, there are multiple realities within South Africa. And for some people, the change that is required is extremely urgent. But for other people, life is good in South Africa. So why is there a, a major uh, need for things to change? Um, which I think is an interesting perspective is because what you're saying is how do you create an equality of perception as to what an is? Alignment. Mm. An alignment. An alignment. Yeah. You know, if you look at South Africa, it, you have uh, vast differences in wealth. Mm. It's the most unequal country in the world in terms of, 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 of wealth. Mm. But it's not only physical wealth, it's only intellectual, it's also intellectual wealth in the sense that, that the educational levels mm. and the quality of education is different in South Africa. But it's not only that. If you talk about the various population groups in South Africa, you talk about the Ichikosa, you talk about the Zulu, you talk about the others. How can you enter understanding if you don't understand that language and you don't understand that culture? Because language and culture are interwoven in terms of your worldviews. Mm. Uh, one of the great mistakes that they think that, that uh, normalization in a society comes with, say, homogeneization, making all people homogeneous in terms of language, homogeneous in terms of culture, homogeneous in everything. But it's not the way ordinary people function. It may be at the top level. It may, may be the, the more wealthy part of the, or the leadership part of the society. But in a poor society, you have that mass of people in the bottom. They live a different reality, not only a different reality in poverty, 
but also a different reality and a culture. Mm. And and their, their emergence into a better kind of world comes through is a cultural transformation. It is out of their culture into a new world, not escaping their culture because you have a couple of people doing it, but the mass of the people can't do it. They, mm. they captivated by that culture. Yeah. So um, I'm a strong believer that in South Africa that we should we, we should be we should aim at multilingualism. Uh, I'm now too old to, to go into that route, but I talked to my grandchildren about it. Mm. If you live in South Africa in this part of the country, you, you should not only be able to speak Ichikosa, mm. but you must also have some understanding of that culture. Um, only understanding your own culture. Whether you're American or a British or any, only understanding is not sufficient to change the world. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, Churchman wrote that book, The Enemies of Rationality, and he said something in that book, and I refer to that book in our lectures, mm. refer to, to the book. He said, unless you can become the enemy, you can never conquer the enemy. What he means is, unless you can move into the mindset of the people you're talking to, mm. you, can't, you can't change them. And that is the problem, <laughs> I think, with a lot of work also in future studies, is that it is so culturally homogeneous. People tend to, to, uh, to think there is a, you know, a sort of a collective, a standard collective that can serve all. No, it's not so. Mm. You have to, you, every, every, a, a complex understanding is cultural. It is nothing else than cultural, mm. complex understanding. Yeah, which is, which is interesting because I, um, I speak to a lot of leaders and they always refer to there's, um, 10 skills that are required for 2020, uh, mm. which 2020 is now next year, but, uh, those are the World Economic Forum skills and yeah. some of them are critical thinking, uh, the ability to reason, creativity, innovation, all of those kind of things. But I, I guess one of the skills that is missing is understanding of cultural diversity. Deep understanding of mm. cultural diversity. You know, this is why um, the uh, um, the um, layer analysis, the new thinking mm. uh, of Inyatola, and also Slaughter's work, and so on, and also the 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 uh, uh, the, the previous uh, inter uh, what's his name uh, Lombardo. <laughs> Lombardo. Yeah. Why I think that work is so important. Mm. If you, if you, and also the work of of, of Dana Meadows, because in a, in a later life she she moved in the, into that direction. The different layers, you know, the cognitive is down on the rational level, mm. but then you enter a world which is a world of perceptions, the world of understanding of reality, and so on. Mm. Uh, I don't know whether I discussed this particular case study that Ari de Geest gave us uh, when he visited South Africa more or less in 1988. And it's also, I think, it's published in his book, uh, uh, The Learning Organization. He told a story about, I think it was Singapore and Malaysia, in the forest of Malaysia. And that was in the turn of 
the previous century, beginning of uh, the 18th to the 19th, uh, the 19th century to the 20th century. Mm. A team of British researchers visited uh, Singapore and decided, uh, anthropologists, decided to visit a, a, a village in the, in the forest of Malaysia. And there they discovered a person so wise, it was, you know, he was the wisest person they could, they, they, they talked to. Mm. A deep understanding of what's going on there, of their life and so on and so on. So they took them down to Singapore and showed him everything, the ships and all the buildings and the new electricity and the emergence of motor cars and all that things and so on. And after two weeks, they took him back and they debriefed him. And Ali said, Ali Dekhir said, that one, <laughs> one conclusion they came to is the only thing that really struck him, that he saw a person carrying a bunch of bananas, which is the huge, hugest bunch of bananas they've ever seen. And this is cognitive dissonance, mm. uh, an, an inability to see things. Before I started farming here, I couldn't judge a vineyard if I drive through that vineyard. Now that I'm finding, uh, farming with wine grapes, I can drive through the, uh, an area and say, well, this, is, this vineyard is something wrong with that. Soil is not good and so on. The moment you start seeing things in a different light, you're observing different things. Mm. And this is where culture comes into the game. Mm. And this is... <clears throat> and. and Perhaps the mindset of the American president is a cultural mindset. And if you want to apply yourself, you have to get into that mindset. Mm. And enter, enter that person from particular, that particular mindset. And the same with every country mm. and every nation, every leader. So do you think that the futurists, other than the ones that you just mentioned, uh, do you think futurists are doing enough of that kind of work to make no. a difference? No. I think that the, the, the movement uh, towards more deeper uh, deeper forms of inquiry, the uh, causal layer analysis, that kind of, of, of mm. route, that is the route that we should now apply ourselves to. Mm. We should not just be think it's sufficient to do nice forecasts and nice scenarios and beautiful stories about everything. One should ask yourself the question, we, we, we're now living in a world <clears throat> that is really in a, experiencing great difficulties, mm. not only in the physical world, but also in the, in the ordinary uh, interaction with human beings. Uh, you, know? mm. uh, you look at what's happening to religion, for example. How that's, Religion was always a, a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. Uh, in most cases, uh, you know, look at all the religious wars throughout history. We complain about Islam, but what happened to the Christians? Mm. How they killed each other over nonsense. Mm. That is a mindset. And the problem of the challenge is sustainable society. That is the challenge. And how do you create a sustainable society? You don't create it just by publishing books and so on. You have to enter the problem itself and understand in depth the nature of that problem before you can change it. Mm -hmm. So what are your thoughts then about the 
almost incessant focus on the fourth industrial revolution. It just feels I like think, every yeah, I think it's one of those fancy words is now uh, political fashion, fashionable. Uh, <coughs> technology is not an artifact. Uh, the moment an artifact, a technological artifact, starts to drive you, you've lost. Mm. <coughs> technology is human beings applying themselves better to problem situations. And in that process, they use certain things like IT and so on. Mm. But it's a cultural transformation, not a physical transformation. It is not being chased by, by IT or chased by all kinds of things. It is something much deeper than that. Mm. It is doing better with less mm. or doing more with what you have at this moment. And that ability is the logic of technique, mm. technology. Mm. And, and so the fourth industrial revolution, it's a, uh, it's a word that I, uh, I don't have, I, I, you know, I, I'd rather not discuss the topic because mm. I think it is one of those new ideologies yeah. that is now in South Africa becoming extremely, everybody's using that word. Mm. Um, we, it's better for South Africans to start fixing the pumps and f start fixing the, the practical problems. And the question is, how do you design that society? You have to, you, you, you first have to crawl before you can walk and you have first have to walk before you can run. Mm. Why talk about running if you can't get off your feet? Mm. And this is what's happening in this country. Yeah. And this is what's happening all, over, all around the world. Mm. And this is why we have this chism, this huge gap yeah. between the wealthy and the poor. Because the wealthy thinks in a certain way and the poor cannot appreciate what's going on. Mm. They, they, they don't, can't comprehend it. And this is South Africa's problem. Yeah. It's almost as if leaders are picking that as a theme because they actually don't know how to solve. Oh it. well, that it's a fashionable it's a fashionable yeah. concept. It is uh, for South Africa. I would say it's very near to nonsense. Mm. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but even yeah, and and as you say, it's uh, it doesn't feel like it's the right evolution for a country like South Africa no, well, because we don't have yeah. that connection between yeah. our cultures. We don't understand each other's cultures. Well, we don't understand each other. This is why. I'm, I, I'm, I'm challenging society at the moment, especially Stellenbosch University, for, mm. for that reason. I say uh, they think that uh, to solve this uh, situation in South Africa is to become global in its orientation. Mm. I say first discover what's around you and what's a problem and solve them at the practical level if mm. you want to solve the, the bigger situations. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting perspective because there is an argument to say that innovation should be local. It's not of course, us. but that is exactly that. Mm. Prof, if you, um, if you were a young man, if you were 35 years old and you were starting all over again, knowing what you know now, in the year 2019, what would your path be, uh, obviously, as a futurist, if you were, uh, if you were exploring the, the world of um, future studies and trying to make a difference, especially in South Africa, where would you be focusing your attention? What would you be doing? Well, I, I would argue that um, <clears throat> I will start at school level. Uh, you know, the problem... <laughs> I, 
The problem uh, is that we, we think that, that the solutions only enter into, uh, uh, enter into a person's mind by, say, the seventh, eighth year, ninth year of schooling. Mm. It is the way, the way you develop the, the mind of the, of the child and how you progress onwards. I will, first of all, I would, and, and that was a challenge for us also in the 1980s because we published a lot on on the problem of inequality in schooling. But it's not only inequality in schooling, but it's also what you teaching in school, how they are, they are taught in school. Mm. Uh, too early fragmented thinking produced people that cannot think holistically in the end. Mm. Um, I would allow children to play a little bit more to discover a little bit more from the earlier age, not to recommend, but I will have three or four disciplines mm. because you cannot be creative if you're undisciplined. You can't be a good painter or uh, anything if you're undisciplined. So you have this almost stretch out between freedom and discipline, mm. structure and diversity that to manage between them, you, children must be playing and they must learn certain fundamentals in, say, in language, in calculation, and so on, certain, very strong, but outside of that, mm. allow them a little bit of freedom. And then in the university level, I will tackle the, the approach, the British approach of baccalaureus, three years of specialization. I will, more, I will move more towards the European system where you have broader education, and perhaps a five-year degree, mm. Bring, and I will, another thing is I will definitely bring in an African language in every, uh, every school, in every class, mm. so that they can speak African languages, the languages of this country. Mm. Because if you want to develop this country, you have to develop them through the people of this country. Mm. And innovation is a personal thing. Yeah. So that uh, that will be one of my main focuses. I will I will t tackle the children. I will bring discipline, but I will allow teaching processes to allow them to, to think broadly, to to be more creative, and so on. Take take those little pads and the TVs away from them, mm. uh, because they they um, I think too uh, they they there's too much. Artifact focus and too too little creative thinking, mm. which is a lot of the um, case studies from places like Norway uh, dictates that children should be playing outside in the forests and experiencing how to deal with each other, creating social capital within the community. Well, that is that is important. Mm. I believe that is a root. Uh, one of the problems that we cannot understand what's happening in this world is because we lost that ability. Mm. Yeah. Which is interesting. Have you ever read the books of Harari? No. Sapiens. I, I've got Sapiens. I just haven't read it as yet. Well, we yeah. better read that book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it's, and it's, also Homo Deus, yeah. Man the God. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Okay. It's on my list, yeah. <laughs> I think I should don't, it don't keep it on your list. Keep it in your mind. Yeah. On that point, what else should uh, what what should great futurists be reading? What what are you finding a lot of value in at the moment? Well, that is a question that I was asked the other day by one of my ex students. Yeah. Also, yeah, 
And I told him that in my library I have about 2,000 books. Hmm. I think to, 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 uh, to refer to, to uh, particular books, groundbreaking books, uh, uh, is a good thing. Uh, I would say that the Akoff material that I've started reading uh, early in my life Hmm. Uh, was important to my development. Uh, I, I think the Jovenel's work was important. Uh, but a lot of other things, Future Shock uh, by Alvin Toffler, hmm. in the, that was published in 1969, that introduced me and a Silent Spring. You know, the important thing is, if you're the futurist, you, you must be curious about life. Hmm. There must be a, an intense uh, interest in things, observing things, and 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 uh, 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 you must be a curious person. You shouldn't be a, a, somebody that just runs down the line and tries to improve what you have. You have to always try to jump out of your knowledge field if it's possible. And this is why I I books I read books on politics. I read books on history. I read books on a lot of things. Mm. Uh, so. I, I will not guide a person. I can only say at the moment that that the the patterns that, that develop of deeper inquiry in future studies, like the the, the, the Inyatola's work and so on, I think this is a route to go. And um, I I think that the, the questions around the futures, uh, memory of the future, that is important things. You know, your mind uh, that is important. Your understanding of reality is important. Uh, I would argue that every person that is interested in the futures field must build up his own little um, <clears throat> handbook mm. over time, uh, multidimensional, looking at the economics, looking at technology, looking at everything. Okay, compile sets of these things, keep them, and, and then structure them so that it makes sense to you, not just put, put it in files, and but... Try and make sense of it and writing it down in a, in a way that, that, that is useful. This is why we started Business Futures, mm. to bring that discipline into thinking. Mm. Uh, so uh, that's another thing I would say that the futurists must do. And that's the cognitive dimension. Mm. And you must be interested in people also. Yeah. You, you should not be in love with your own mind. Mm. That's a great point um, uh -huh. because I think so many people are in love with their with their own minds because I guess that's where they feel comfortable. Of course, they feel incredibly uncomfortable exploring these things yeah. which they don't necessarily uh, know anything about. You must live an uncomfortable life if you're a futurist. Hmm. You must test the limits of your belief, always, hmm. even the religious belief. Yeah, yeah, which is tough because. Um, yeah, it's uh, it just feels like that the uh, there's a lot of judgment in the world. I think that um, people are very scared to step out of their their comfort zone because it's important, I guess, in a professional context that you know <laughs> that you know what you're talking about. It's important that you have specialist well, knowledge. It's because you're so interested in yourself, not in <laughs> the world around you. You're so interested in your own little world that you, you don't care much about what's happening around you within society. Yeah. Once you observe society, you become emotionally loved. And once you can feel the pain mm. of society outside your comfort zone, then you take a little bit of a step as a futurist. Yeah. 
perhaps not, you know, but as a futurist, definitely. Yeah. So uh, it, is, it should never be comfortable to be a futurist. Right. You must always test the limits of your belief. Mm. And there, then also, don't try and defend your position. Try and understand the other person's position. Mm. That is dialogue. Yeah. Part two of my discussion with Prof. Spies follows shortly. Be sure to give this one a listen as well as the other episodes. Thanks again for subscribing. See you next time. Thanks for listening to Heroes of Futurism. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing and we'll see you next time. Cheers.